Yeah, absolutely. Why else would you need six pairs of underwear? Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode 194. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Brian Prilliman. I am joined tonight by Jess Dunks. Hi, this is Jess. And Brogan King. Hello, everybody. Hi. And we have a very special guest tonight, uh, a man who needs no introduction. So we're not even going to bother with any of that. We're just going to start into the topic. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we are joined tonight by Jared Silva. Hey there. Uh, Jared is the uh, organized play department manager for Star City Games. Uh and uh, is a regular fixture on the SCG tour. So, Jared, uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, your about the role at uh, at StarCityGames.com? Sure. Uh, as the department manager, I'm in charge of setting policies for the SCG tour, uh, as well as uh, working with my team to staff the. Uh, judge and head judge and admin positions for the SCG tour and make sure that we have uh, great judges every weekend to help us get through events like this past weekend where Jess was head judging the largest ever StarCityGames.com open in Indianapolis, Indiana. Yeah, quick, so thank you for that. The largest quick, ever. Quick, yeah. quick, yeah, it was the largest ever. Quick shout out to uh, our our uh, relatively small staff that managed to pull that off. If you're listening, thank you very much. Yeah, that was a that was a lot of work for uh, for the whole weekend. Yeah, just no yeah. big deal or anything. Yeah, we had uh, just just over a thousand players. I've been to uh, smaller GPs in the recent recent memory. Uh, That's wild. Oof. It was uh, it was really exciting to be there. It was a great atmosphere, and uh, you know people were really stepping up their game to make sure that the the event went off. Um, awesome. So uh, you, speaking of the SCG tour, you're you're uh, kind of a fixture on that. You don't go to all of the events. Uh, these days, though, but uh, you still go to quite a few. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, starting this year, because uh, we are no longer running Grand Prix, uh, I have a staff that's almost at every SCG tour st stop. That is uh, Patrick Warbroker, Ward Warren, John Paul Adams, and Stephen Peterman. And then uh, myself, Callie Anderson, and Ricky Hayashi rotate through uh, the events. And so I'll be at about one in three. Uh, a little bit more than that, because every once in a while we think that uh, the staff on the road needs to actually have a week off. I think that sounds like a pretty good idea. Yeah, that's a worthwhile cause. I try. <laughs> um, and you're also uh, you're you're a level three judge, former level four judge, um, and uh, you're also a GP head judge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. I haven't gotten out to one of the the newer Grand Prix, and I'm going to be appeals judging in Hartford on April 15th to 17th, and then in Pittsburgh on the 22nd to 24th of June. Oh, awesome. So Jer Jared was has also been on uh, two episodes of JudgeCast in the past. Uh, uh, after his uh, promotion to level four, approximately five years ago, uh, he was on episode uh, 51, where we talked about uh, what a level four was. Uh, uh, and then he was on again on episode uh, uh, 111, where he was talking about investigations. And Jared has also created a investigation workshop. Uh, and I 
believe you talked about that some in 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 one eleven, but I know that it's been adopted and used by multiple judges at conferences uh, that I've been to in this region and in many others. So that's that's a pretty yeah. Cool um, I I can't take full credit for it, and and the current incarnation right now. I know Ronald Thompson is doing a lot with it, and I believe that Matt Williams has also done a lot of work, uh, kind of taking the concept of hands on uh, actual cards and decks. Uh, situations where you lay out uh, a game and play through the game and then get to a point where something's wrong, call in one of the participants to actually take the judge call and walk through it with the uh, the two facilitators who are playing the players. And so we wanted to do something that was more hands-on than a lot of the seminars that were happening. And uh, this was an idea that Ricky dug into with a really intensive uh, reviews workshop. And I was interested in investigations and trying to work on stuff like that. And so uh, spent some time down in my basement with uh, Steven Zwanger and Jason Reedy and Jason Flatford just knocking out some scenarios for people to dig into and look into uh, you know, mistrigger situations and life total disputes. and. Um, Know, how do you go about trying to figure out whether a deck is illegal? Or not? Um, so it was something where we felt like there weren't the hands-on resources for something like that. So we tried to go out and make it, made some, and uh, you know it's it's much more something that other people are carrying on now, and I'm I'm really happy to see that. I feel like so. Go ahead, Brian. Oh no, 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 go on. I, I was gonna say I feel like we've been we've been like we've learned a lot about Jared even even now before we have we have reached the the drum wall, drum roll moment we've all waited for here. Uh, Jared uh, was the head judge of the recent Pro Tour Rivals of Ixalan in Bilbao, Spain. Uh, so that's what we're here to talk to to Jared about today. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a great event. Um, it was an amazing staff. I was really excited to get to work with uh, some of the judges who I don't see all the time. Uh, most of my work is in the United States, and uh, due to travel cost selection for international pro tours, opens up the door to a lot of people that I get a chance to see only every once in a while. So, so we've got a we've got a lot of questions about how head judging a. a a pro tour is is different from a from a, a GP just and and like some of the behind the scenes stuff. So I guess really the place to start is at at the beginning. Like how how are you how do you apply or become selected to pro tour head judge? Is it really just like Anna comes up and sings at your door and asks you you know so you want to judge a pro tour? So you want to judge a pro tour? Right. Come on, we'll go to Spain. We will soon be releasing the full single of uh, "So You Wanted a Pro Tour," written by Jess Dunks. That's 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 like a that's like a, a platinum Patreon tier. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, that's the blackmail tier. Yes. Um, uh, so uh, all of the Grand Prix head judges are eligible for uh, head judging a pro tour. Uh, there are also a few other uh, judges who are kind of legacied into that group. Um, people like Toby Elliott, uh, who are not active Grand Prix head judges, but have such a history of, um, of high-level events that there's no concerns about their ability to perform that role. Um, and at the start of this process, 
all of the Grand Prix head judges are sent a list of the eligible people to rank uh, one to four. And uh, one is somebody who you think absolutely is ready for the experience, is going to do a great job, and you have every confidence in putting it at the head of a, of a pro tour. Uh, number two is they may be ready, but they might do better with an appeals judge role uh, at a pro tour before they get a chance to uh, step out in front as the head judge. Uh, three is, you know, they're good, they're fine, but this is not uh, the time for them to, to take on that role. And then four is if you have concerns about um, the person in the role. And any time that you're rating somebody at four, you need to give an explanation for your concern. That makes sense. Um, so that's sent out by Scott Larrabee from Wizards of the Coast. And Scott takes all of that feedback in and selects a pool of uh, Pro Tour head judges to reach out to and offer the opportunity to head judge a Pro Tour. So Scott uh, Singh. <laughs> so uh, he'll select five um, because there are four Pro Tours and there's also the World Magic Cup. And so those are the five that are considered uh, a part of this process. And uh, once those five are selected, he'll talk with each one of them to determine how those judges are going to be elected to uh, each of the five events over the course of the year. Um, for me, uh, one of the things that made uh, Bilbao really interesting for me was uh, it's a modern format, which is always exciting. Um, and it also was in Spain. Uh, whereas two of the Pro Tours this year, Richmond and Atlanta, uh, I expect to be driving to. Um, I had to get on a plane. Uh, I guess a boat would have worked, but it would have taken a really long time. Um, so I challenge you. it was exciting for me to... Sorry. I said I challenge you to take a boat to Richmond. I will I'll buy you a beer if you can get a boat to Richmond. I've got a trailer. Oh, boy. Right. That's... <laughs> That's just get a few get get someone to drive get a few cool coolers in the back and you can ride that boat on to down uh because well, I was gonna say I was gonna say like up what is it up sixty up uh up eighty one up eighty one in sixty four yeah, yeah. eighty one to sixty four all right I've I've created a demon here moving on <laughs> um so uh once Scott's talking with the the five uh, who've been selected uh, first of all they have to say yeah. Um, and sometimes someone selected who looks at the schedule and says, I'm sorry, I've got conflicts for these three. I can't make the travel work for this other one or something along those lines. Uh, and at which point they'll select somebody else to, um, to, to fill in that. Um, at this point in time, the Grand Prix head judge group is really, really strong. There are a lot of, of judges who are absolutely ready for this. And uh, I mean, one of the things that I'm most excited for is when I get that email, being able to send it in and say, I think this person should and here's why. I think this person should and here's why. And, uh, you know, those are, are opportunities that, you know, I know I value a ton. And I was, I was very honored to be selected. Um, and, you know, looking around, I'm, uh, it, is, it is even more of an honor because I see the people who haven't had a chance yet. And man, I think that a lot of them are, are better judges than I am. So kind of dovetailing off of that uh, conversation about how the head judges are selected, how are other judges in general for the Pro Tour selected? Are you a part of that process? I'm a part of that process, but again, the final selections come from Wizards of the Coast. Um, so I can talk a little bit about um, the role of the Grand Prix head judges in that, as well as 
kind of some of the priorities that I know are there, um, but I'm not the one making final decisions. It's uh, it's somebody who it's again Scott deciding on the final staff based on his priorities and his budget, and there's there's a lot of pieces that go into mm -hmm. it. Uh, so similar to um, when we're selecting the Grand Prix head judges who should be uh, chosen to head judge a pro tour. Uh, the Grand Prix head judges are all provided with a list of the applicants for um, for the Pro Tour and have a similar ranking system. One being somebody who every single time they're selected is going to be a major addition to the staff. Um, and sometimes that can take into account things like language skills or you know, a particularly strong logistics person who you know, is going to be able to handle setting up and running a draft with you know, 450 people. Um, and so one of the things you can note is a plus one and then a reason. Um, so it might be somebody who, if you're just evaluating on, I'm going to put this person out on the floor, how do I feel about that? They might land at two. But you say, I want this person to be a one because I need somebody who speaks this. And looking at this applicant pool, you know, this is the only person. Um, and so there's a lot of priorities. Um, for me, one of the priorities was with this is my first pro tour, uh, I looked at the applicant pool for judges who had been really important to my development uh, and who I felt would would add to the event for me to be there. Um, and so, you know, these are judges who, you know, maybe I had worked with at early events um, or who I had um when I traveled to Europe, I got a chance to work closely with them and you know, really learned a lot from them as to the differences between the European judge community and, and the American judge community. And so I was looking for a, I tried to limit it because I, the, the application pools for these are just, a, and you wind up turning down a lot of people who not only could be at the pro tour and do fine, but who would definitely add to the event. Um, and so once, all of that feedback goes back. Um, they certainly take head judge requests into account. They take uh, all of the ratings into account. Um, I've worked as the assistant tournament organizer for uh, the Pro Tour a few times, and they also have asked me the same types of, of ratings questions. And so Scott takes all of that back in and works that together with the priorities that he has. You know, covering all of the languages is a really important thing. Uh, at a Pro Tour, one of the the things that comes up on a fairly regular basis is you will have two players seated across from each other who don't have a common language. And so a lot of times the caliber of judges who are at the Pro Tour can actually work through a fairly straightforward ruling without needing to have deep language skills. But when you start getting into situations where you need to understand both players' stories more completely, a lot of times you wind up getting into a translation situation. Um, and so you need to have language skills spread across the major languages on the Pro Tour. So you absolutely have to have Japanese represented. You need to have Spanish represented. You need to have German. Um, you need to have Dutch. And you know, Portuguese is one that I think is a, a very important one to, to have on the Pro Tour because people think that it's really close to Spanish. And it has a lot in common, but not enough that when you're really trying to dig into what exactly happened, uh, 
you need to have a bit more and a bit deeper understanding of what's being said. I've, I've experienced that problem firsthand at GPs where that's, oh, we just can't find anyone who can, who can speak Portuguese and Spanish is close, but not quite there. It's, uh, it's really interesting to get into translation ruling because you really have to think about what you're saying because everything that you say needs to be translated. Mm -hmm. And so it makes you very careful with your words. And in investigations, that can sometimes be very helpful, but it always just adds time and adds time. And um, you have to get the person for the translation, and then each step of the way has to be repeated. Uh, the translator enters the ruling not as the active judge, the translator enters the ruling as a translator for the judge who took the call. And so not even if it's not the head judge, the floor judge who responded is the one who makes the final call. Uh, there's a lot of consultation, so having another judge there and involved uh, is always important for getting you know, the nuance of what's being said and stuff along those lines. But uh, they strictly step in to facilitate communication rather than to take over the room. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to actually jump in and stress how important it is if you ever are working with a translator uh, at a judge call to 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 think about your words and to to be relatively concise with your words because the more complex you get, the more lost of the message is likely to get in translation. You'll also do better if you keep it the the pieces short. Right. It's very easy when you're starting to go into a ruling and try and dig in to launch into, oh, I want this and I want this and I want this. You've got to break it into pieces that are going to be able to go back and forth without losing the thread because translating is not. Mm -hmm. Right. Try not to make it harder on the person who's trying to help you out. <laughs> all right. So we have a, a bunch of input from a bunch of people that all gets sort of put together and assembled into a staff. Um, from there, uh, we have our, we have our judges. How, how do we prep for, for the, the pro tour? Like what, and how does that prep differ from what, uh, what a GP looks like? So there are some things that are similar to a grand and I've had a lot of experience prepping for grand prix with starcitygames.com and I use some of the same techniques. Uh, I always reach out to the floor judges and ask a number of questions, um, for Rivals of Ixalan, my, um, my questions were pretty straightforward. Um, I asked for who they were, <laughs> and Good then start. just a 1 to 10, uh, how experienced do you consider yourself with the current Pro Tour structure? And that goes from my first Pro Tour to comfortable in any role. And then are you interested in a particular team at this event? Uh, and the teams that I used were a little bit different from, from what I've seen before. Um, I used logistics, which was going to be focused entirely on draft setup, and then decks, which handled both lists and deck checks. Uh, I used an information team, which was in charge of end of round and flip distribution. Uh, at the Pro Tour, you also have uh, digital pairings boards, and so the information team also covered uh, if that system failed, uh, taking paper pairings to um, to pairings boards so that we could make sure that the, can, the event could keep going. Um, a floor team that was focused on floor coverage and troubleshooting, and then uh, a coverage team that was focused entirely on the feature match area. Um, and then, are you interested in calling a draft? And that was a simple yes-no question. And then, 
the last question I asked was, which judge would you like to have as your team lead at Pro Tour Rivals League? And I wanted that information because what I wound up doing was pairing all of the judges up with someone. Uh, if you were a lead either day, you were paired with the other lead. And so uh, you would work as a support on one day and as a lead on the other day. No, so of the, of the same team? Stayed on the same team. Oh, okay. Yeah, stayed on the same team. So uh, for floor, I used Ricky Hayashi and Anik Vanderpice. And logistics, I used Alfonso Bueno and Paul Baronet. Dex, Matteo Caligari and Sophie Podges. Information, I used Frank Berman and Nicolette Capri. And then on coverage, uh, Guillaume Bozelin is actually specifically contracted to serve in the coverage area as the overarching lead and also to handle appeals. And that contract is for the whole year. Uh, Wizards really values the consistency in the feature match area. And so Guillaume is going to be a fixture there for 2018. Um, but he worked with Carlos Ho and Gavin Dugan, uh, who took point on some of the logistics and also were there to soak up some of the knowledge in case, you know, uh, Guillaume gets hit by a bus. <laughs> yes, specifically that. That's the thing we're worried maybe, about is is maybe, getting maybe hit by a bus. It, maybe we can make it something uh, nicer, like wins the lottery. Wins, yeah. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Flies off to Spain, but I, in that case, he'd still be here. Um, and then for the other uh, pairs, you were paired up with another judge, and you moved teams between days. And so um, those pairs were Emilian Wilde and John Aldifer, Eric Levine and Hans Wong, Damian Hiller and Matt Williams, Jonah Bement and Stefan Ladsdotter, and Ricardo Tessitore and Sergio Perez. And... I really liked the way that this worked because it gave you someone to really be part of your whole pro tour experience in a way that I've seen it fractured before, where if you're moving between teams and you don't have a consistent person that you're with, you can feel like they're almost entirely different events. Um, jumping back to how prep diff differs from a Grand Prix, uh, a lot of it is scale. Um, a pro tour is much more like uh, a day two of a Grand Prix. And so when you're going in and that's what you're handling, and you also have all of these judges who are absolutely capable of being anywhere on the floor without causing any problems, you don't have to worry about whether or not they can handle what you're, what you're giving them. You have to focus on trying to build teams that are going to work together. You can focus on making sure that you're giving some opportunities that you know, people are ready for, and you can put the right support in place to make sure that they are not just out there on a limb. They've got somebody right there if they need to turn around and ask a question. Um, and so it's, it's really fun because it's really hard to make mistakes. <laughs> you, you can't lay these people out in a way that is going to crash and burn your pro tour. They're just too good. So you're, you're creating uh, art regardless. It's just how beautiful your art is. And it's, I think for me, some of my priorities were making sure that uh, people who were coming out to uh, their first or second pro tour and they, had, they were into, they, they understood what they wanted to do and they were energized for it and they were really excited for it. Um, that was something that I wanted to reward and put into lead roles 
where they had that support. You know, that's why I made those pairs is I really wanted to say, here's somebody who's old had it. They've handed, they've handled this, you know, five, 10, this is their 15th pro tour and someone who's still relatively new to the pro tour, but you're going to watch them on day one. And then on day two, they're going to be there every step of the way if you need them. And so those pairings were something that I really put a lot of, uh, a lot of thought into what are the opportunities that I'm giving and how this is going to make a difference to the judge. Because there are a lot of judges at the Pro Tour who, if they lead, it's another Pro Tour for them. But there are some judges where a lead role is something that they really are going to value and take all kinds of lessons away that they can bring back to the Grand Prix circuit and that they can uh, bring back to the SCG Tour. And just having that experience at the highest level and surrounded by so many people who are there to help you succeed is a great opportunity. My heart's all warm now. <laughs> I, I can also say I appreciate that, uh, that kind of mentorship aspect between old L3s and new L3s that you've put into this. I've, I've had varied experiences myself at Pro Tours. Sometimes I've had a great time working with the other judges around me, and sometimes it has seemed like nobody really knows what to do because there aren't any L2s to mentor and we're just kind of there. And I think a lot of that can come down to how our teams are put together. Um, so I really appreciate, even though I wasn't there at this pro tour myself, I, I appreciate that kind of uh, forethought going into the team construction. Um, and I know that other other head judges definitely put the same level of, of detail and and thought into what they want to do with the staff just may be a little bit different than what I chose to do. Um, yeah, yeah, I didn't mean to speak negatively of anybody's particular decisions. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. It's, it's just, you know, I, I picked out these are the things that I'm going to focus on. And so I can talk more about those. But, you know, when you're laying out and a, a team like that, it's, it's just about what little tiny turns you want to make on the knobs. It's not about trying to avert disaster, which I've, I've had to do at some other events. So Jared, you were talking a lot about having uh, kind of some of the best judges in the world, how you can't really have anything burned down. So your focus was more Absolutely. on, uh, you know, making sure that the, the right people are put together so that people can learn. Uh, were there any teams where that isn't the case? Like, is there, is there any team where you, you go, okay, well, I'm starting here and my best grouping out of that is going to be in this spot or anything like that? Yeah, the one that I really watch at the Pro Tour and that I think that former head judges would agree on is logistics. And that's because the draft setup can get quite complex. And being able to support that and make that happen in a timely manner is very high-level event expert uh, work. And so even within this group, there are people who I'm more confident in at that part of running the event. And so that's really where I start. I start with that and, uh, and move from there to, to the other team. So that that's sort of your, your building block to build off of and then go from there. Yeah. And again, I don't know that people who know me will be all that surprised that I think logistics is uh, not, not even for a moment. I, so I imagine what you're really saying is the team that I would build first on a grand prix is the team that I build first at a pro tour. Yeah. Um, at a Grand Prix, I think it's even more important because you do have a wider range of skill sets and you know, the, the lowest uh, capacity for logistics on staff at a Grand Prix is 
much lower than low, lowest capacity at a Pro Tour. Right. But you still want you. This is the Pro Tour. This is the highest level of organized play. You want everything to be perfect and set and the last thing that you want to do as a head judge or as the judge staff is to be adding time to the event. You want to create a situation where you can work to get ahead of schedule, and if the event needs to slow down, you want that to be a choice, not something that's dictated by mistakes that you make. So, so let, let's. So we've talked about like the the stuff leading up to it and some of the things that you you've do specifically in, in formation of the teams. Can you, can you talk about like Friday and Saturday, you know, what were they, what were those days like in general, like the, the, the pace, the rhythm, like the things that you had to pay attention to, uh, you know, any interesting oh. appeals, investigations, like were you on the floor? Sort of what does the day to day look like? Yeah. What's, what's your day in the so life? Starting, starting off both days of the pro tour is the draft. And so it's something where almost every team is involved to some degree. Um, the logistics team is in charge of all of the physical setup, but um, I used almost every team for something that happened during the draft portion. Um, you have flips that need to go out to each of the pods. You need to have table numbers put up and taken down and pod numbers uh, set and then pulled out. Um, and so you have literally, 60 pods when you start day one, and those all have to be laid out. You have to lay out the entire area. You have to have judges who are ready to watch, and uh, you have to have judges who have extra product in case a pack that's open has the wrong number of cards or is damaged or um, is problematic in some other way. Uh, and those judges need to be spread around. And so each of the teams had uh, something to do during that setup. Uh, you have to have deck lists on each of the tables. Uh, at each of the pods, we put eight deck lists that have the pod number in the corner, which allows us to sort them very quickly once they come back in. Um, and so every team has something that is on their plate during the draft. And so I've called out the logistics team as, as one that I, I see as very important, but everyone has a role to play during that. And so as opposed to some events where it really feels like, okay, we're going to come in. And until the event gets started, we really don't have that much to do. As soon as you hit 8.30, you really jump right into getting stuff done and then being ready for the players to come in. And then you'll post the pod assignments at, um, at 8.50. All the players will come to the pod. They'll sit down. You'll need to make sure that all of the players are in, their po in the correct pods, in the right seats. And so you have a very a very hectic start to the day, even if it's going smoothly. Um, as a head judge, I try to be a connection between uh, the person who's calling the draft. And on day one, that was Gavin Duggan. And on day two, it was Matt Williams and, and all of the tables that are, that are drafting. And so I will usually stay kind of at the front of the tournament watching for any judge who's kind of pulling a table off of the main call uh, and at times I'll pause the call of the draft for a couple of seconds to let a, uh, an issue be resolved. Uh, that'll especially happen when we open the packs. We'll watch for any, any packs being replaced or any problems there because that's a very easy time to take a second without interrupting the rhythm of the draft. Once you get started, there really is a pace and a rhythm to the draft, 
And jumping into the middle of that, even with a 30-second delay, can make a big difference. And so the times that I'll pause are you open up the, the pack and count the cards. I want to make sure everyone is on the same page and that we've solved any problems uh, that aren't going to take a long, long time before we start the call of that pack. And then once you finish the pack and put all the cards face down, that's when I want to wait before we go to the review period. I don't want to do the review period and put the cards down and then wait because I want the players to feel like they've had the review, it's fresh in their mind, they put them down and we go right in. Right, you, you don't want to, to anyone to, to have to deal with, well, I had to wait X amount of time before after looking at my cards and then picking and so just alleviating some of those concerns right off the bat. Yeah, and you know, at that point in time where I'm trying to coordinate the draft from the front, uh, it's exceptionally important to have appeals judges who are available out on the floor. Uh, we did have an incident that required investigation during the first draft, uh, and Jurgen was my appeals judge and handled that out on the floor while I kept the rest of the um, the rest of the draft kind of moving along at a pace. And so it's it's exceptionally important to have people that you trust and who can be the end of the chain without having to run it up to a single person. Right. Um, relating um, to so the, the draft being called. So obviously drafts are called on day twos of GPs, but is there any particular considerations for the called draft at the pro tour? So for me, the primary uh, things that I looked at were, did you want to call a draft? And then were you in a role that allowed me to take you off your team during the draft without impacting how the, uh, draft was going to run. Um, and at this level, with with a few days preparation, anyone can handle calling a draft. Um, the, the suggestions that I have around calling a draft are to be consistent. You want to say exactly the same thing each pack, and you want to call, if you give a 10-second warning each time, you want to give that 10-second warning each time. Um, if you give a five-second warning, you want to give that five-second warning each time. Um, and for me, when I've called drafts, I just have 16, uh, sorry, 15 cards, uh, basic lands that I write on the number of cards that are in the pack, how long they get for it, um, and I just flip through them. And then the 15th card is the information on the review periods, which have gone up to 90 seconds, uh, sorry, 60 seconds and 90 seconds from uh, 30 and 45. That's a, uh, I had never heard of, of that way of, of like sort of flipping through a stack of cards. That's really smart. Um, and the way that you can easily trip up on that is you've got to move the cards in exactly the same way each time because you can, it's amazing how easy it is to forget whether the card that you moved up and in behind is the one that you are in the middle of right. or the one that you just Also, have. if you're a nervous shuffler. <laughs> and so, Oh. Every, yeah, that, that's probably not ideal. Um, but you, that's why you just, everything about calling a draft, the more consistent you can be and the more you can say, I'm going to do this and then this and then this, and those are the steps that I'm taking. It helps you to not just provide a pace to the players that they get into the feel of it, uh, but it also helps you to make sure that you are not hiccuping along along the way. And don't worry if you do. I I don't know that I've heard a perfectly called draft. Um, you know, you say, you tell the players to lay out seven cards, and suddenly everybody's screaming because there's only five left. Oh, in that's the, pack. the fear. And don't worry about it. 
correct to five cards left in the pack. It's okay, guys. All right, collect the cards. You have 15 seconds. And so just any time that you do hit a hiccup, just move right back into that same pace and that same set of actions you want to take. So I think you guys brought up appeals earlier on. Oh, we were, yeah, we were uh, going to talk about appeals and, uh, and just kind of cheating investigations and, and ask how common are those things at the Pro Tour compared to other events? So um, appeals are common. Um, I dealt with anywhere from, I, there were rounds that I didn't have any, but then I would usually be dealing with anywhere from two to five around. And I assume that Jurgen was handling similar numbers. Um, it's the Pro Tour. There's a lot on the line. Um, if a ruling goes against you that you feel has any wiggle room or that you don't understand, you're going to appeal. Um, so that actually makes for a slightly different uh, feel for these appeals than you get at Grand Prix, uh, especially on day one of a Grand Prix. Most of the appeals, uh, somebody feels like they have a pretty good case. And a lot of the, the, the appeals at the Pro Tour are, well, if this happens, I lose the game, so I've got nothing. And so there are, there are plenty of times where you come over to the table. Um, the way that I try to take appeals is when someone comes up to me, I ask them a couple of questions and get the situation, confirm what they ruled. And when I get to the table, I'll say to the players, all right, I'm going to run through what I understand of the situation, confirm what the judge's ruling was, and then I'm going to give both of you a chance to add anything that you want to before I make my final ruling. But I want to make sure we're all on the same page before we jump into the middle. And so I'll walk through, my understanding is this is strictly a rules question. It's about how does ascend work uh, in a situation where there's a card on the stack and timing and you, you come into the situation, you confirm that. And especially at the Pro Tour, a lot of times at the end of that description that you get from the judge and give to the players, uh, the players will say, yeah, that's what happened. Uh, and okay, is there anything that you guys want to add before I, I make a final ruling? And every once in a while, they'll add one or two kind of quick things. But most of the, the rulings at the, pro, at the Pro Tour, the caliber of the judges is high enough that they've figured out most of what you need to figure out. Every once in a while, something will come to light, but most of them are fairly quick appeals. So, um, so most of the time, at the, by the time you get there, the judges have done a pretty good job of figuring out what the issue is. And it's just you sort of resolving it. Uh, yeah. And a lot of times it's just, I'm going to uphold is pretty much all right. I need to say. But uh, sometimes I try to give a little bit more explanation or maybe pivot the explanation they received to a more rules-based explanation or something along those lines to try and make sure that the players understand exactly how we're ending up where we end um, And you know, when it's somebody saying like, I just like, if this goes against me, I guess this round is over. And so I'm, I'm going to hail Mary this, um, to somebody who just doesn't understand how a rules interaction works and needs it confirmed by someone in a red shirt. Um, there are a lot of those. So do you think um, the, yeah, I was going to say the, 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 do you think that the high, um, sort of the, the stakes here lead to sort of more, more investigations into various issues? I don't know that they do. You actually have really high caliber players here too. And so you will, you will often get players who see things that judges don't because they're seated at the match for the whole time. And so there are more investigations that stem from a player saying, hey, I saw this, 
I'm concerned about X, Y, or Z than you do at a Grand Prix because you just have a, a higher density of players who pay that much attention to the game and the game state and things that are changing and things that might be a little bit off. Um, and you know, also, there is a fear of being cheated at, at this level. Like There's so much on the line, you feel like you want everything to be above the board. And if you have any sort of feeling that it's not, you're very likely to get somebody in. Um, and you know, I had a few investigations where it, I felt confident at the end of the investigation that it was an error and the player was not. And you know, all I can do in that situation is say, here, is my, here are the reasons that I believe that this is what occurred as opposed to the story that you're presenting. And here are the things that move me over to this side um, rather than feeling that this was intentional to try and gain an advantage. I think that this was an error because of that. And you, I think you spend more time at the Pro Tour having those interactions than you do at Grand Prix. Every once in a while, you will at a Grand Prix. But there are so many more players who have such an investment in the game and are so attentive to every single piece of it that they have the information to really come back and say, here's what I saw and here's why I believe uh, in a way that not every Grand Prix player does. Speaking of uh, watching games uh, and paying close attention to them, uh, that's obviously something that happens a lot on coverage, which is something else I wanted to talk about. What, um, how, how does the coverage and the coverage team and the needs of, of the coverage team dictate, dictate what happens throughout the day at a Pro Tour? So uh, the, the coverage team of judges uh, for Pro Tour rivals, it was five judges, and they would have four who were available to the feature match area, and each round one of them would come out and, and floor judge. Um, at the Pro Tour, the feature match area has four tables, and you will have one judge who is out and directly in that area available for any judge call. Um, you also have Guillaume, who's in a red shirt and is an appeals judge, um, and he's available to step in as soon as someone has an appeal in the feature match area so that they don't have to come and find me or come and find Jurgen. And uh, then you have two judges who are seated and watching the coverage. Um, the judge who's on the floor, their responsibility is primarily the tables that actually aren't on camera because we have a very good way to observe those matches uh, using the, uh, the Twitch stream as well as the, a direct line feed that's actually about seven seconds ahead of, of the, the Twitch stream. Um, one judge is dedicated to watching Twitch and watching Twitch chat um, in case someone notices something that slipped by. Um, and then the other one is dedicated to watching the live feed and watching for anything that they have concerns about. And so there's a lot of times where something will pop up on Twitch chat, and we actually are already on top of it. Um, but there are other times where Twitch will catch something in a, in a very long turn or something along those lines or kind of away from the, the primary thing that's happening, uh, just because any time that you have 14,000, 15,000, I think it capped out at 19,000 this time around, people watching, it's very likely they're going to see more than one. Mm -hmm. um, so, so when an error like that occurs over a very long turn, or you find something from the Twitch chat, or or if there's an investigation of some kind, 
how often have you had to uh, use the the video review quote unquote policy that's that's in the MTR? So we have that available to us. Um, there was one situation that I reviewed on video, but it wasn't a live call. Uh, it was something that came up and that there were concerns about after the fact. And I went and watched the the replay, and I was actually looking at this and constructing a story in my head that was making me really concerned. Um, and after I had looked at this and reviewed this, I actually called the player up and I talked to the player, and I wanted to get their infor information from them and what they were thinking during this process and how it how it all fell out um, from their perspective. And during that conversation, uh, I realized that because I just have a top-down view and I'm just looking at you know what is happening on the board, I didn't have a clear understanding of what was happening between the players. And there was also a judge who got involved from the from uh, off screen, and so. Those pieces getting added on allowed me to have a, a better, clearer picture of what I believe really happened along those steps and uh, led me to basically land on, okay, I would like you to be more careful about this, but I don't see anything here that is a significant concern. Um, when I had been leaning towards, hmm, this might be, might be a bad thing. Um, other than that, we didn't have any live calls that went to it, I don't think, but Guillaume would actually know whether or not they had to review anything. Uh, I believe that we were really on top of it this time around because nothing came to, to my attention. Well, the question so, that, that I think we all that we all have, everyone has, uh, how does breaks work? Do you get breaks? So, <laughs> getting, uh, getting right down to the important stuff. Let's talk about coverage. <laughs> um, the, the way that, that the actual like people who run coverage work uh, is they're, they're hired and they have official breaks and they have different sets of uh, times that they need to be on or off and stuff like that. And so one of the things that we do is between the draft rounds um, and the constructed rounds, we have a 30-minute break, which is when the timer hits zero, we take 30 minutes and that's when we're going to start the next round. And so that allows players, to, as they finish that round three of each day, to know how long they have in order to get food, uh, you know, kind of take a little bit of time either outside the venue, walk around. Um, and for the judges, there is uh, catering in the, in the back area. And so that half an hour break, uh, in order to make that a full break for judges, uh, half of the teams uh, went on break halfway through round three, and then half of the teams came back halfway through round. Um, coverage team had to deal with it themselves they had to be self-sufficient in that way they split their team in half and had half of them go on break uh, halfway through round three half of them go on break halfway uh, come back halfway through round four but i didn't dictate any of that i left that to guillaume so on 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 day three on uh, sunday of the pro tour um as the head judge do you find yourself hanging out in the feature match area watching matches of magic or are you watching the, the the monitors you mentioned with the the just brief delay or are you just sitting back you know watching the twitch stream on your phone like what 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 are the options or, or drinking mojitos I, or whatever definitely mojitos yeah. I, I actually have a lot of experience with this because um my role when i'm assistant tournament organizer is wrangling players and you know if the players are sitting in the feature match area i have successfully wrangled them um and i'm there you know kind of assisting and making sure that 
everybody has what they need, but most of the time it's, it's watching what's going on. Um, I stayed focused on the live monitor. Um, there were a couple of times that I walked out into the area to, to kind of check a couple of things or ask the, the judge who was in the feature match area a question. Um, and I always tried to uh, greet the players as they came in and then congratulate the players as they left on day three because I mean, it's a major accomplishment to make the top eight of a pro tour. You've got 16 rounds, two different formats. Um, you've got to come in the door with a deck that you've got confidence in that, you know, that confidence holds up. And then you also can't have a bad draft. Uh, you, you tank a draft and it puts you in a position where you, you've got no, no room whatsoever to uh, no leeway. And so it's a major accomplishment for these players to make the top eight of a pro tour. And I want to make sure that they know as, you know, they're walking off and the, the other player is, is getting congratulated that you know, we recognize how hard and how much of an accomplishment it was to be in that area on Sunday, much less, uh, you know, just at the pro tour. So at the, at the end of, uh, uh, when at the end of the event, when you have a uh, the the finalist, the the winner, um, what are what are the the head judge responsibilities at that particular point in time? Is it um, you know do do you do you sit there and talk with them, photo ops, uh, or is it just shake their hand and go about your day? So with the coverage team, uh, you know Marshall and LSV and uh, Tim Willoughby and Simon Gertson and and all of all of them. The uh, responsibility for, all right, we have a winner, now what do we do with them, is off the judge's plate. And so we're, we're responsible for making sure that the top eight plays out clean and that the players have everything that they need and that there are not, um, there are not issues with the play. Uh, in terms of coverage, that comes off of our plate. And- um, so I, this, is, this is another sort of... It's kind of an existential question. Um, So you're going into this event, you're the head judge, and everyone who has head judged anything knows that sometimes head judging is a little overwhelming. Um, So what's it like knowing going in that that this is the highest of high profile and the people could be, if they don't like something, they'll post all over about it on Reddit and there'll be all kinds of kerfuffle. Um, I have never had any problem with kerfuffle. <laughs> right. um, so that's, that's really what I focus on is I would much rather as a head judge turn around to somebody I trust and say, I'm about to do this because of X, Y, and Z. This is going to make a difference. This is going to be noticed. I trust you. Do you, you know, do you have questions for me before I do? This? And, you know, it does make you think, and it does make you, you know, I would rather take that extra second and, Man, there are there are twenty five people there who I can turn around and say that to and feel like I've got somebody there who okay if they agree with me I feel good um, and so you've got a team to support you on that um, but yeah you are out in front and you understand that but it for me it's no different than when I'm making a ruling at a table I want it to be right you know I have a responsibility to those players whether it is top four of a pro tour or round three of a grand prix or FNM. You know, they're asking a question and they expect me to have the right answer. And, you know, yeah, there's, there's more eyes on it, but if you do it right at FNM and you do it right at the grand prix and you do it right at the pro tour, 
You did it right. So you you've you've heard it here, right. everybody. Uh, even pro tour head judges will will check in with other people and and communicate with people whose opinions they respect to make sure they're not doing anything totally wild. Yeah. So I, I got I got so one of the I'm going to I'm going to riff off that for a second. Um, at Grand Prix, you've probably heard your head judge say run any game losses or backups by a level three. At the Pro Tour, we say check with anybody because you've got a staff that if two people agree on something, they're very likely right. And so Anytime that you're going to handle a game loss or a significant backup, just turning around and talking to one of the other judges to make sure to sanity check is a great way to go and gives you a really great resource anywhere that you are on on the floor of the pro tour. So I, I have I have one one question related to to Reddit uh, that that I believe is probably you're going to be pulling more from your from your GP experience, but. When you disqualify a player from an event and then the Reddit thread starts and it is uh, the entire Reddit thread is based on a single side of the story. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, how how hard it you know, and this is this is just, you know, for my for, how hard is it to not chime in? Like we as judges don't don't comment on ongoing investigations, that kind of thing. But oh, that's got to be like a whole new level of frustration there. Well, I mean, all of the. All of the stories that I've seen put on Reddit have been 100% accurate. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Next <to>. one. <laughs> Nothing, nobody posts anything false on the internet, Brian. Who, who just oh, goes and lies okay. on the internet? So, yeah. Uh, one, of, one of the things around that is that a lot of disqualifications are about what you believe happened. And you know, I talk about this on the investigations episode. You're building a story in your mind, and you're trying to support it with evidence. And at the end of the day, you sit down and say, given the evidence that I have, here's what I think happened. And if what you think happened is someone cheated, then they should be disqualified. And you can support that to yourself and you can support that to other judges. And you may go and talk to somebody and they may ask, hey, did you ask this question? And you may feel that, oh man, I wish I had. Um, but at the end of the day, if you are comfortable with the decision that you made. And if you believe that the story that you constructed around what occurred, then, you know, you've got to be comfortable saying, this is what I think. And that this is why I'm, I believe this. And therefore, I'm sorry, but you're disqualified. And I, I, I've been in situations where I've had a player who absolutely disagrees with my decision. And that happens a lot. And, you know, even if they did cheat, a lot of times their interpretation of what cheating is is different from yours. And I have also seen the Reddit posts where the person's like, so then I did this and this, and then I got disqualified. And Reddit's <laughs> that, like, that, uh, yeah. Uh, clearly you did. Because you should have been. Yes. Um, and so uh, it's the Internet is an interesting place where sometimes coming out and telling your side of the story isn't enough to convince other people. So I, um, we had some questions that came up. We, we asked on uh, Twitter for some questions from, from listeners as to what, uh, you know, what they would ask a pro tour head judge. And to be honest, you've actually covered most of the questions that people <laughs> have asked already in what you talked about, but there was one in particular that we haven't touched on that I wanted to, uh, that I wanted to ask about. Sure. Um, and that is, um, why isn't there a judge on hand to explain judge calls that happen 
on the on the coverage stream. That is so, to say, if I'm watching coverage and there's a judge call there, um, the, the the commentators are not as familiar with the policy as the judges at the event. So why don't they have somebody correct. who's more familiar? Now, in in the booth, I know that they had LSV, who at one point was a level one judge, and then Simon Gerson, who is a very high level judge. Um, and so they've ha- they have some people who have have a lot of experience with that, and a lot of their team watches a lot of these events and sees a lot of judge calls and understands the basics of policy. I think a lot of the confusion that happens is due to not getting all of the information back to them. So I first want to say I don't think this is the coverage team not knowing what they're talking about so much as the coverage team watching the same top-down view of the battlefield and not hearing everything that is said between the judges and the players during an investigation. Um, now, I'd certainly support uh, being able to pull a judge in to explain what happened, but having someone right there all the time is not something that I think they're willing to dedicate a judge to, because there really aren't that many calls that are complex enough to want that. Um, I have gone into the booth at a previous Grand Prix to explain a situation, and if something is complex enough, they will reach out to the head judge to have a quick segment on, okay, here's what happened. Um, but most of the calls, because you have video, you have uh, the judges right there, you get to it quickly, they're just not complex enough to warrant uh, that level of explanation. That makes sense. Um, I think I want to chuck in one more Twitter question that I think is a nice, uh, is probably going to be a nice like feel feel good um, for the end of, hopefully a nice feel good for the end of the episode. Um, is it fun or is it boring? So, uh, for me, it's always been fun. I've never not enjoyed a pro tour. Um, I think that it's only boring if you let it be. Um, it is much more like a day two. You have a high concentration of judges. They're all really good. Um, and so a lot of what level threes are used to doing on day two of Grand Prix where they're supporting somebody who might not be ready for uh, for handling everything that comes at a team or working with somebody else who they're really trying to bring along and mentor. Um, you have a lot more peer-to-peer mentoring, and that's not something that we get as much experience. Um, and so figuring out how to attack the day as an opportunity rather than coming into it expecting to have problems come up that you can solve. Because a lot of, especially level three judges who are in more of a float role at Grand Prix, they play more of a firefighter role because something is going to go wrong at a Grand It's so big, it's so complex. You have so many judges of varying skills that somewhere along the way, something will go wrong and you can fix it. And at a Pro Tour, you have a very large staff that has tons of experience and a very competent player base that makes fewer mistakes overall. Um, they may get people more involved when they do, uh, but a lot of the a lot of the calls are quick and a lot of the appeals are quick, and so you don't have that critical mass of all round long. I was answering judge calls. That doesn't happen at a pro tour, and so you have to figure out how you're going to actively engage with the event in order to make it fun. Um, and I love events like this because it's an opportunity to do it as well as, and 
you're not at all in a mentality of, I just need to keep this afloat. You're in a mentality of, how do I put the polish on this so that it shines and people walk away from here feeling like this was a great experience. And from the top table to the bottom table, um, how do I make sure that every player walks away knowing that they have to do everything they possibly can to get back here? And so that is something that I find immensely fun. Um, so I guess I'll be that annoying guy and say, it's only boring. If it's boring for you, it's your fault. I knew that was going to be heartwarming. All right. Well, I, uh, before, we, before we part, uh, Jared, did you have any parting thoughts or anything you wanted to plug before we move our way to the end of the show? Um, we've got the SCG tour, more events coming up. Uh, SCG Worcester is going to be a legacy open and I'm always excited for those. I love seeing those, those decks come out. And I know that that player base is always excited to get an event streamed. Um, and then we follow that up with SCG Dallas and that's going to be another modern open. And it's going to be our first look at, uh, what, uh, the format looks like with Bloodbraid and Jace back in. Um, and I, for one, am excited and scared and thrilled and terrified. And we shall see how this all goes. Seems right. Um, I, had a, I had a blast with Modern before this happened. I absolutely believe that this format is, is ready to handle those, those cards coming back in and start to learn what it has to do to adapt. Um, and then following that, uh, SCG Cincinnati is our, our next team open. That's on March 24th and 25th, and I'll actually be there for that one. I'm excited. That's a, those team events are, are a lot of fun to, to run, and you get to see people come out who don't come out to the individual events, but they get two friends who are really adamant about uh, dragging them out of their, their, their hobbit holes coming out to play. All right. Well, Jared, I want to thank you so much for – Coming on the show, I just got one question for you. How long Absolutely. do you think it'll be before another uh, StarCityGames.com Open uh, is is breaking another one of its own records? Well, in, in, in terms of tournament when, attendance, uh, I'd have to check when Abe Corson is head judging because I think that he's he's gonna he's gonna have to come back after you. Abe's held that oh. record a couple of times, but uh, we're we're gonna have to have a throwdown next time he's it's out. It's a in feud. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, you put the bar way way out there because. 1,052 players for an open. There are a number of opens this, this season that have a capacity lower than that, uh, just because of the number of seats in the room. So there's going to be a number of events where you're definitely safe. But the first one that I'd look at is is Dallas has a shot. Um, so I guess it comes pretty quick. And then uh, the team events are always exciting, and I'm excited to get back to the Midwest with uh, with a team event. Those are... Uh, those are two that might might have a chance, but that's a that's a so, real number. So Jess might not have the crown for long, <laughs> is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Abe's coming to claim the belt. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I don't know. Texas comes oh. to play. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for listening uh, and remind them that uh, you can check out Jared's previous episodes, which I'll link up in the show notes, and uh, the rest of our archive at judgecast.com. You can talk to us on uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash judgecast and on Twitter at twitter.com slash judgecast. And our email address is judgecast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank everybody again for listening. My name is Jess Dunks and I keep it fair. And I'm Brogan King and I keep it fun. I'm Brian Perlman and I keep believing everything I read on the internet. Mm-hmm.